Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. It's a buyer's market. Power has absolutely shifted to employees. Companies require the best from their managers and leaders to create the conditions for high engagement. What else do companies need? They need Scott Miller, leadership expert, podcast host of Frankly Covey on Leadership with over 7 million downloads per week, and author of the best-selling book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. Highlights of the book include, hey, It's their meeting, not yours. Your job is not just to give feedback, but create a culture of feedback. And your job is to be a light, not a judge. You'll be mesmerized by Scott's depth of knowledge, experience, and enthusiasm. Hello and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your co-host, Mitch Simon, on the West Coast and on the East Coast, my delightful, brilliant, Amazing co-host, Dr. Virginia Bianco Mathis. Hey, Yay! Play the timpanis. But, 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 yes. But today, 7 million downloads a week. 7 million downloads a week. That's who we've got on the podcast. Who did we pay, Jenny, to get get Scott Miller on the podcast? So capping a 25-year career in which he served as Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President. Scott Miller currently serves as Franklin Covey, Special Advisor on Thought Leadership, Leading the Strategy, Development, and Publication of the firm's best-selling books and Thought Leadership. Scott hosts the Franklin Covey-sponsored On Leadership with Scott Miller. That's right, 7 million downloads a week. The world's largest and fastest-growing Growing faster than ours. Fastest growing weekly leadership podcast, reaching more than 6 million people. Scott, so excited to have you on Team Anywhere. Welcome. Dr. Jenny Mitchell, my honor. Thank you for the platform, the spotlight. Looking forward to talking about all things management leadership today and all the mistakes great. I've made along the way. Okay, great, great. Because uh, if we're going to be comparing mistakes, this is going to be a long podcast. Um I love oh, I this, Doctor. Oh, I win, sir. <laughs> you win. Okay, you win. Great. So I am Mitch, and you are Doctor Ginny. Uh, so let's begin here. Uh, you are perhaps one of the country's leading leadership experts. That's what, at least that's what your PR firm tells us. We want to know what surprised you most over the last eighteen months. I am surprised that organizations did not see the Great Resignation coming. That ah. any organization did not realize. That even though all their employees were hostage during the pandemic, there were no options to go anywhere, that as soon as any kind of opening came, whether it was the vaccine, whether it was, you know, the the economy roaring back for whatever reason, that people were going to start to flee bad managers and corrupt cultures or worse, just or better, perhaps even decide their values had shifted and they didn't want to be working for a company that didn't value them. I mean, that did not take a crystal ball to see that a year ago, leaders at every level in an organization, 
front level, mid level, senior level. They were the linchpin to creating a culture where people chose to stay. Keep in mind, leaders do not create engagement. That's some human resource bunk. Leaders do not create engagement. What they do is create the conditions for others to choose their own level of engagement, high or low. So I have been evangelizing for over a year that if companies do not get their act together, when the economy started to have some elasticity, people were going to have other choices. And I got it half right because what happened is people are leaving, but a lot of them aren't leaving to go somewhere else. They're just quitting. They're going home. They're doing a side hustle. They're opening an eBay store. They're not going from Exxon to Disney or from Delta to United. They're just quitting and like they're grateful they're still alive. They lost their grandmother. They lost their spouse. They lost their grandfather. And they're just now figuring out what is it they want to do next. That's, I think, what I'm most surprised about. Dr. Ginny, I love this guy. Well, I, I know. This, this I know. guy's good. This guy's really good. <laughs> now, what surprises – so you're surprised that, that leaders didn't get it. Were you, were you surprised that leaders didn't get it? You know, I – yeah, kind of. Kind of because this wasn't like predicting the market, right? It wasn't like, right. you know, predicting the next variant. It was if you weren't asleep at the wheel in leadership the last three to four years, you might even say the last two years, whether it was between the social justice movement, whether it was the sort of excommunication of bad bosses in workplaces because of sexual harassment or, you know, ethics violations. I mean, there's been a comeuppance that happened prior to and during the pandemic, unrelated to the pandemic, with all the DEI and inclusion you know, initiatives and, 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 and women entering boardrooms and executive suites at an unprecedented pace, which should happen faster and sooner, <laughs> that anybody that was in a leadership position at the board level or the executive team level should have realized that leaders, I'll say it again, leaders are the linchpin to cultures. People don't quit jobs. They quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. And we're seeing it happen in droves. And they should have, and some did, but leaders, organizations, I don't typically armchair quarterback, but they should have recognized this was coming. And totally agree. And this is the amazing point to piggyback on that. Not only did they not see it and get it, they felt that they can, well, let's now just go back to the way it was. It was like they weren't even watching the movie. Because a lot of the things that have evolved in terms of what is needed right now, all the things you just said, some of them we have been talking about for many, many years. Right? And now the importance of it they can't hide anymore. And so even on Wall Street where they say, I want you back in your seats, I just can't wait to see what happens. Oh, I think it's a buyer's market, right? Like the real estate market. I think that uh, corporate America, the power has shifted. The power has shifted. If the board and the C-suite think they are going to make demands of their people that are untenable or unrealistic or unsafe, they're wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that we're shifting to a, a unionized workforce or that you know employees are going to hold companies hostage. Just employees will simply say no, and then they'll quit. 
And they'll go somewhere. Because you know what? Again, I think what a lot of leaders need to realize is that everyone's values shifted post-pandemic. People don't really care about as much the kind of car they were driving. They don't care as much about how much money they're making. Now, you know, behold, do not take advantage of anybody. But everybody's values have shifted that I know. And people are focused on quality of life. They're focused on meaning and contribution and mission and legacy. Not just the younger generation now, but people in their 40s and 50s oh, and 60s. Yeah. People oh, want yeah. to matter. They want to add value. Yes, they need to go their 401k. Yes, they need stock options. Yes, they check, check, check. But they're not willing. They're not willing to be humiliated or mistreated anymore. They're not for one day. They're not willing. Either you solve this, you get rid of that jackass leader. You change this culture or I'm out. And they're and they're and they're speaking with their feet. And the word I think of the hour is choice. That year of reflection made folks realize, oh, I have a choice. And so many choices, right? I mean, look at these companies now that are changing the admittance criteria, the, the idea that you have to have a four-year degree for most jobs now. It's not even a criteria, right? The fact that you have nine careers in your resume and you're 35, come on in, right? At our generation, you were a pariah. Like, so you've had four jobs in 10 years? What are you, toxic? Now it's the opposite. Wait, you've had one job for 25 years? What's wrong with you? I mean, the rules are fundamentally different now. Wow. Okay. Rich Holtz, Rich Holtz, I, Holtz, try to take control of this crazy train. <laughs> well, no, I just, I, I am really, you, you're, you know, he speaks the truth. What I'm, what I'm really present to is the fact that I, cause I remember when I lost, when I lost a job and it was, well, I might want to consider another job. Now it's, well, I want to consider not working. It's, it's to say, to say, Scott, that the, there's so much toxicity out there in the workplace that people are just choosing, no, I'm out. Well, it's to the doctor's point, right? Which I'm going to call her the doctor now, which the is doctor. people have choice. You know, this yeah. idea that, you know, in our generation and we're about the same age, you know, if, yeah. you, if you weren't working, you know, 50 hours a week for a fortune, you know, 500, what were you doing? I mean, what do you mean? What do you mean you're working for a graphic art studio? What do you mean you have a side hustle? Now right. people can go earn as much or more, you know, doing anything from their living room because now it's acceptable and not only acceptable, right. it's the new norm. And so the, the amount of choice is only going to exponentiate. It's not rolling back. Choice in right. opportunities, choice in certificates, choice in education, choice in mobility, choice in how you collaborate. It's a buyer's market. Okay. I want to know, I'm just really curious, and I'm, I'm sure listeners are curious. What I know is your first job was building a town yeah. <laughs> with the Disney Development Company. And, and it's funny because... Um, uh, I have my girlfriend is is spent a lot of time in Florida, and every time she talked about being from Celebration, Florida, I thought so. So it's like you have to always be celebrating, or they kick you out. So how did you go from real estate development to a seven million a week download on leadership? So I'm from Central Florida. I was born and raised in Winter Park, Florida, and I went to work for the hometown company Disney. Uh, the Disney Development Company, which is the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company. They build the theme parks, hotels, cruise ships, and they sell them back to the operating company. Well, this 
town now that is a vibrant town called Celebration for 25 years, homes to, home to tens of thousands of people. It was cow pasture. And it was Walt Disney's original idea of what Epcot would be, kind of the, the, the Jetsons meets Mayberry, right? So I get a job as a research coordinator because I was a, a restaurant waiter during college for one of the managers that went to work for Disney. I knew her because she was a curator at a local museum, right? I just was, I gave her good service and I was, I was gracious and on time and I was honest and she fell in love with me and she hired me as a research coordinator. And so this was back when it was, you know, cows and wild boar roaming around hundreds of thousands of acres of wetlands. Disney, of course, then turns it in to this remarkable community, not without controversy, but I can tell anybody who's listening, whatever you've heard about Celebration, this was a remarkable project with the finest architects and the best educators and the best planners to really bring together the best innovation between architecture, community, play, a sense of place. Disney was not doing this only as a financial venture. They were really, you know, really genuinely interested in helping to build community. Well, I worked there for four years. They invited me to leave, which is a nice way of saying, Miller, see ya. You know, I was young. I had so much bravado. I was a jerk. I was a know-it-all. I was the smartest person in the room at age 24. You know, you've met me. So Disney yeah, invites there. me. To, what's that? Yeah, I was there too. Thank you, ma'am. It's just you and me. It's only just you and me in the world, I know. So here I am, 26 years old. I'm out of a well-paying job. And uh, before that, I had worked with Vice President George H.W. Bush and Senator Quayle for two years. So I'd spent several years on their political campaign. They went to Washington. I went to Disney. And I had stayed in touch with a lot of their staffers. And the then governor of Wisconsin had, had hired me to become his associate chief of staff. He was going to run for president. Long story. I was packing my bags to move to Madison, Wisconsin. And Dr. Covey came calling. Because wow. they, had, they had met me in some meetings at Disney and liked uh -huh. me. Uh -huh. And so I, I, here I am, you know, Orlando, Florida. Where does a Catholic single boy move? Well, of course, to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics are, right? Duh. You so, want a challenge for Pete's sakes. I was crazy. So I move out Provo. to Provo, Utah. Hey, that could be a whole podcast. And here I am 26 later. have an amazing journey. Started at the front line. Went to the C-suite. As the chief marketing officer for a decade of this global public company, Dr. Covey was a man of incomparable you know, leadership integrity. Absolutely. He, of course, wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He passed about 10 years ago. And then I started writing and podcasting. And before that, I was, of course, the CMO. So I was always behind the scenes making everybody else rich and famous and wealthy and influential. And I said, you know what? I can talk like they can. So I started to book myself on some keynotes and then... Before you know it, I'm on stages of 7,000 people, and I'm just talking about my own leadership journey, about how basically right. I kind of screwed it up. And that really has where my brand has come. I moved from the back of the house to the front of the house, and here I am today on your podcast. Wow. It's amazing. It's, you know, and for all those young people out there listening, when you're waiting tables, be nice. You know, it's just one of those things. It's like, that's it, right? Always show your best self. Your, your best most self. precious asset <laughs> Beyond your soul, if you're a religious or spiritual person, is your reputation. Yeah. And your reputation is merely the collection of all your decisions and choices over life. So choose it very wisely, especially now in a day of you know social media where everything you do and say and think is likely documented. 
All right. So let's get into one of your books. I think you, you've written like 7 million books, right? It's, I think I, cause I, we, we are looking, I got a few coming out. I got a few coming out. We're, we're looking uh, for those of us, we're looking uh, at, at the back of Scott's head and there's lots of books there and he wrote them all. We're going to focus in today on, I think it's one of your latest ones, which is uh, everyone deserves a great manager. The six critical practices for leading a team. I know that is a, a huge bestseller. And I want to know, of all the things you could write about, why did you choose to write this book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager? Because Harvard Business Review conducted a research study about five years ago that said empirically, the average age that someone is promoted into their first management position is age 30. Yet the average age that same person receives their first formal leadership development training, age 42. This is not folklore. This is HBR research. 12 years of people wrecking havoc across cultures. Scott Miller's that are well, we're not sociopaths. We're just bad leaders. And so I got passionate about this to say, you know, after a 30-year career in the leadership development industry, where so many of us talk about how, well, everyone can be a leader and everyone should be a leader. No, hogwash. Not everyone should be a leader. Just like not everyone should be an anesthesiologist. What's that? I'm so glad you said that. It's true. And not everyone should be a commercial airline pilot. What happens is most organizations promote the top individual contributor, right? The, the most efficient dental hygienist or the most creative digital designer or the top salesperson. I mean, there's no correlation in what makes you a great sales contributor and what makes you a great sales leader. In fact, they're inversely correlated. So I've kind of been on a campaign with many others like yourselves to say, hey, it's okay if you don't want to be a leader because leadership isn't and shouldn't be the only path to influence and title and income. Organizations should be much more deliberate on how they lure or rather lead people into leadership roles because what happens is you have the top sales producer. She's you know delivered on her quarters, 16 quarters in a row. You now make her the sales leader and now she realizes – Oh, crap. I got to have high courage conversations around personal hygiene. I got to have discussions around too much disclosure in the office or punctuality or or I have to be a model. I have to model everything I want to see in the people. And what we teach in this book is that a leader's mindset is they have to achieve results with and through other people. Yes. And when that becomes your frame of reference, everything changes. You are no you no longer are the smartest person in the room. You're not the genius to quote Liz Wiseman, but you're the genius maker of others. So I co-wrote this book with two colleagues to make sure that leaders at all levels understood, you know, are there more than six practices of course. You know, 14 was too many. So after 30 years of research at the company, we boiled it down into six things that if you can get these six right, you're kind of on your way to success. And those six things are. All right, there. Next question. Yeah, real quick. Number one is, like I said, develop a leader's mindset, right? The old mindset, the or the ineffective mindset, is really, you know, is you know, I rush in and save the day, right? I, I get things done on my own, my way or the highway. The new mindset is that I achieve results with and through other people. I mean, that is foundational and fundamental. Practice two is holding regular one-on-ones. This is really, we prescribe a process of how do you, how do you structure a one-on-one? Who does most of the talking? Whose meeting is it really? 
spoiler, it's their meeting, not your meeting. This is a chance for you to really understand what's going on with your team. What are their fears? What are their passions? What are their joys? So you can get to them before they decide to say yes to the LinkedIn overture from the recruiter. Practice three is set up your team to get results. This is all about setting lead and lag measures, how to set goals from X to Y by when, how to delegate. Practice four is create a culture of feedback. I'd argue that you know, next to recruiting and retaining talented people, people who are noticeably and palpably more talented than you are, that's your number one job as a leader. Mission, vision, values, I get it. System, structures, strategies, I get it. I think your number one job as a leader is to recruit and retain people more talented than you. And I think your number two job is to give people feedback on their blind spots, is to move outside your comfort zone and discuss the undiscussables. So practice four is create a culture of feedback, reinforcing feedback, redirecting feedback. But by creating a culture of it, you also make it safe for others to give you feedback. What is it like to be led by you? What's it like to be in a Zoom call with you? What's it like to be on a podcast with you? Receiving and giving feedback. Practice five is lead your team through change. We have a fairly rudimentary, intentionally rudimentary change model that just talks about how emotional change is and that leaders have to always explain the why behind the what and recognize that not everyone will acclimatize or accelerate or assimilate the change as fast as you do. And then lastly is manage your time and energy. As Dr. Covey would say, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. That as a leader, it's your job to take vacation and renew. It's your job to encourage your people to take their PTO so that they come to the office refreshed and engaged and excited about it. Those are the six practices in a nutshell. Great. Great. Those are great. Uh, So leader mindset, regular one-on-ones, set up your team to get results, culture of feedback, lead teams through change, manage time and energy. All right. So Scott, if you were to write this book again, I I don't want to write it again. I'm writing something else. I'm going to write it again. And it was called the six critical habits for leading a remote team. What nuances, um, you know, first, which of the six would you immediately go, okay, okay, remote leader, you know, you really need to dive down in one or two of these. And here's some advice I'd give you and some tactics on how to make sure you do this real well in a remote setting. Such a timely question. Thanks for the setup. I wouldn't change the practices per se, but I would talk about empathy in each one of them. Is really okay. understanding this idea. Yes, we were all in the same storm. No, we were not all in the same boat. And that you don't have any idea, likely, what your team members were going through. You know, as a Catholic, I can appreciate this idea of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have do unto you. You know, Treat others how you want to be treated. Hogwash. It's the platinum rule. Treat others how they want to be treated. So as a leader... Your job is to understand intimately each member of your team. What are their fears? What is their situation? What's going on in their family? What are their goals and joys? What brings them, what ignites their genius? And, you know, have they been alone in a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan? Haven't seen daylight for a year. Are they perhaps, you know, in a multi-generational home where there's no place to have a quiet Zoom call. There's, you know, what, what, what's going on in there and how fearful are they that they're going to lose their job? Do they understand what the new success? So on and on and on and on. It's developing empathy. It's not thinking that the world is like you. 
most of us see the world not as it is, but as we are. So you've got to really change your paradigm to know, you know, what's going on in Ginny's home? How's she doing? Is her husband still employed? Does she have a husband? She has a wife. I didn't know that. Is your wife still employed? Tell me how, you know, you get the point is, I think it's just through all of these is really trying to understand, is your team set up success? Are you, are you making it safe for them to thrive? What can you do to clear the path? How do you do that remotely? First of all, you enter every engagement through the lens of, I'm here to check in, not check on. Yeah. So you don't start every meeting with just launching into the agenda. You genuinely express that you care. Perhaps you uncharacteristically move out of your efficient mindset and you move into an effective mindset and you deliberately decide to have the first 15 minutes of every meeting just talking about how is your day? How's your schedule? How's your technology? What can we do for you? Do you have what you need? And just listen, which is, by the way, typically uncharacteristic for most leaders because all of us are trained to speak. We're in selling mode, persuasion mode, influence mode. Most of us are not good listeners. Dr. Covey would tell you most people listen with the intent to respond, not with the intent to understand. And I actually think it comes from a good place because as leaders, we're fixers. You want to fix things and solve things, but not everybody needs you to fix it for them. They just want to maybe talk about it or get it off their chest. So what do you do? You enter every conversation with the mindset of I'm checking in, I'm not checking on. How are you doing? What do you need? I think that most people now have found their groove for those who had the luxury of working from home. By the way, a significant portion of the population did not, and some of them lost their lives because of it. As leaders, I would say, don't forget the time you put $3 of gas into your car because that's all you had. As a leader, don't forget the time you ate popcorn for lunch. Not because it was Popcorn Thursday, but because payday was Friday and there was no money for lunch. And so if you just can remind yourself of what it was like to fear your boss, what it was like to be uncertain about your employment, what was it like to be at odds with your team or feel like the odd guy out, you will naturally develop empathy and start treating people how they need to be treated because you can treat people differently and still treat people equitably and fairly. I do not treat all my team members the same. I do when it comes to, you know, criteria and promotion, but I give them feedback differently. Some one-on-ones are more efficient than others. There's one person that we're supposed to have 30-minute one-on-ones. My assistant knows that I block off 90 minutes every two weeks because it always goes because of her style. She's single. She has a small social life, very competent, but she just needs to talk. And what I'm doing is I'm building a culture of engagement. I'm not building engagement. I'm building a culture of engagement. I'll tell you the biggest lesson I learned from Dr. Covey, and I think it's very applicable to your question. Can I share this? Please. As the chief marketing officer, I was constantly being interviewed by the media, and they would often call me up and say, I'd like to talk to you about the seven habits of highly efficient people. You mean the seven habits of highly effective people, the book that sold 50 million copies? Yeah, that one. Okay, well, it's called the seven habits of highly effective people, not the seven habits of highly efficient people. I think in what is now a virtual environment where we're all kind of on one Zoom call after another, we're not doing the the lunches, we're not in the rooms, we don't see people's body language. Every leader needs to know when to be efficient and when to be effective. 
And I think many leaders like me have an efficient mindset where you get things done, you check things off, you move on. And that's probably where you got most of your success from was your level of productivity. And that's where you lost your empathy. Because- or, never found, or never found it because you were so stuck in that. And you cannot be efficient with people. You can only be effective. With people, fast is slow. And slow is fast. So when it comes to these six critical practices and a virtual environment, recognize what are the types of things and projects and calls where you can be efficient. And when should you like, like noticeably, mechanically, Move into a effectiveness mindset. Turn off your phone. Turn off your Apple Watch. Turn off all the distractions and just spend some time connecting with your people and generally making sure they know you care about them, not just what you can do from eight to six, but you care about them as people and as people with fears and, and, and joys and struggles and wanting to leave a legacy. That, that may sound ethereal, but I think it's quite practical. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was, that was a lot. That was good. I think I asked the question like 25 minutes ago, Dr. Ginny. Is that what it? Yeah. No, I love it. It's just great information. I want to ask you um, another question. That was very efficient, bit, by the way. Yes, it was very efficient. It was very effective. It, it was very effective. It was efficient. I, whatever. So are you seeing, this is a big question. Are you seeing um, many of your clients go 100% virtual um, or do you see them mixing it up a little bit? You know, and and how can you do that effectively? Because I know you talk about, you know, the looking at culture and things like that. How how have you seen your clients move effectively in this world of well, you know what, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff online, and we're going to be doing some stuff together. How do you make that work? I think the best organizations are recognizing that they're not in control. That this variant, this virus, is changing so often that they announce everyone's back to work on January first. And then they announce eight weeks later, oh, never mind, it's going to be June. Or the smart ones are, are not announcing anything. They're figuring out less about where and when and more about how, right? It's how do we make sure that our people are happy, that they are choosing a high level of engagement, that they feel valued, that they have a, an esprit de corps. Every manager, every leader knows you still have to create this esprit de corps with your team. How are you going to do that? It's not my job to dictate to you. Now, yes, there's protocols and there's legal issues and there's you know all sorts of things, mass mandates and vaccine mandates and people quitting. The best organizations, I don't think they're pontificating. I think they're listening and they're adapting. They're agile. They recognize that they're not in control and they're, they're not making big sweeping decrees. What they do is they trust their people. You know, I think it was Melissa Meyer at Yahoo a couple of years ago that swung the pendulum a couple of ways, all at home, all back, all home, all back. And, you know, maybe she did a, maybe she did a good service to a lot of us because, you know, she made some of the right and probably wrong calls early on that we all could watch. I think the best organizations right now are kind of playing it cool. They're not making sweeping decisions and big grand policies where they're going to be embarrassed because something outside their control happens. They're working within their circle of influence. They're keeping their employees updated. They're listening. They're learning. They're adapting. You know, Franklin Covey, for example, everyone's working from home. You can come to the office if you want. There are protocols. You either have to wear a mask or you have to have a vaccine or you have to be tested at your own expense. We haven't had, you know, 
sweeping vaccination mandates yet. Who knows what will happen in companies, right? I think everybody's kind of watching and listening and learning. For us, the question isn't where do you work? It's we trust you to get the work done because we have set very clear outcomes. We're very, we've made it very clear to you on what does success look like? What are your deliverables? When and how and where you get them done is now your business. And we were not a very progressive company. You know, you, you were a, you know, come to work at eight and leave at six. And we were not a progressive company on many levels, but I think we um, bruise hard and heal fast and we adapt quickly. And so now I think we're sort of in a holding pattern to see what can we learn from others and maybe what can they learn from us as a leader now, I know a white guy in his fifties, I'm very much accustomed to people working eight feet from my office, right? This is how I was raised for 35 years. And so I've had to fundamentally change my mindset. I'm not a naturally emotionally agile person, 25 years in one company people, right? Yeah. But I'm adapting a lot. Great. So, you know, change or die. Great. I got a final question. This is a very detailed uh, leadership, scholarly, intellectual question. Um, we, we've been perusing your website and um, we've, we've, we've discovered that you have two workmates named Wilbur and Oliver and you, you, you disparage Oliver and you, you recommend that, that, that people don't go out and rush and get an Oliver. And I just would want to, if you could clarify us, what, what, what is going on there, Scott? Wilbur is 14 years old, and he is a dog that is a, uh, a beach poo, a combination of a bichon and a poodle. Oliver was um, 13 almost, and we had to put him down about oh, six weeks ago. It was very so painful. He was a Brussels Griffon. So he's got a little dog that looks like a combination between a Civil War general and an Ewok. And he was – these dogs are bred – like to root out rats in um, in stables, right? So he was a busybody, and uh, and he he unfortunately had some very um, debilitating health problems. It was a very emotional. I, I can't believe I'm actually tearing up right now because I have no problem asking the question. But he was a busybody. He was a pain in the ass. He you know thought he was a great Dane. He was you know twelve pounds, right? But Oliver has gone on to a different life. And to my horror, my wife has purchased a new Oliver named Wilbur that is seven weeks old and is coming to our house on December 8th, December 28th. So we have- No um, way. That's, uh, Wilson is coming to take Oliver's place. So Wilbur and That's Wilson been. will be um, teammates in a couple wow. of weeks. So you, you do not take your own advice, Scott. I'm really surprised. My wife is in charge of that side of the Miller Land household. So I, I see. Yes. All right, great. Well, this has been an incredibly um, delightful, <laughs> entertaining, and and really um, effective well, conversation. Twenty more questions. That will have to be another whole event. Another one. If we can great get him before you he give me the platform. Thank you both. You're welcome. Yeah, we have to get him before he's 14 million downloads a day. Can you tell us, Scott, where? Where can we find you? So 58 B Street is my home in, in Salt Lake City, Utah, but virtually you can visit scottjeffreymiller.com. I write Great. a column for Inc. Magazine every week. All my blogs for LinkedIn are there. All the episodes, all the books that I've written are available on every major book retailer worldwide in multiple languages. And you can follow me on every major social platform, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and starting in January, TikTok. Come you.
the dancing God. leadership, the dancing leadership guru. That'll be fine. That'll be fine. Well, great. So this has been great. Um, I want to thank you, Scott, for uh, for fitting us in here. I want to thank you, Dr. Ginny, as always, and I want to thank you, our listeners, for um, for supporting us, for for you know listening to this great content. And we want to uh, we want to uh, encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And uh, be Sean, be Sean, beach poos, and beach poo, and yeah, a beach poo, and a Brussels Griffon, and a Brussels Griffon, and we'll see you next time on this amazing podcast that we call Team Anywhere. <laughs> <laughs>